0: Good morning, I think. Um, no, that's, that's good, I think, yeah. Um, I'm sure you are equally disappointed as I am that I'm here and not Peter Linus. Um, I'm a bit more pleasant to look at, perhaps. Um, Peter is really sorry and disappointed that he can't be here this morning, but looks forward to being with us um, at a future date. Um, a bit of emergency prep yesterday here, and um, I think we all need the Lord's help to hear His words and not to hear Donna's words. Um, Nathaniel and I are big fans of box sets. We always have something lined up to go with in the evenings, um, open to recommendations. Um, And one of our pet marital hits is when the other one has gone ahead to watch episode one of the one that we're looking forward to watch together. And often, one of us will just try and join in at episode two, but that doesn't go so well because normally me is asking, well, who's that? Why are they doing that? Are they married? Are they good? Are they bad? Um, And my husband doesn't like talking when we're watching a box set. But beginnings of the story are so important, The beginning of a story sets the direction for the rest of the story, and without the beginning, the rest just doesn't make sense sometimes or can go a bit askew. And so this morning, as we're thinking about church and gospel, faith, mission, world and culture, we need to start at the very beginning because it's a very good place to start, And because without it, the rest of the story becomes skewed and disjointed. And so we're going to root our thinking in Psalm 8 this morning. And as we always do, and this is important, this is a public reading of God's truth. Let's stand and read together. The words are on the screen. Psalm 8, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth You've made them a little lower than the angels and crowned them with glory and honor. You made them rulers over the works of your hands. You put everything under their feet, all flocks and herds, the animals of the wild, the birds of the sky, the fish in the sea, all that swim in the paths of the seas. Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Take a seat. We're going to look at this psalm as a framework for church gospel mission culture in three sections that are familiar to us. Looking up, looking in, and looking out. Firstly, looking up. Looking up, we become aware of the glory of God, and we've been singing and praying and speaking about all that already this morning. And as perhaps as David lay on the hills with the sheep, looking at the creation of Palestine, there's something inherent within him that cries out about the glory of God that was set above the heavens. Psalm 19 expresses this, the heavens declare the glory of God. Yahweh has set his glory above the heavens in such a way that even when one small child says one sentence about how great he is, that far outweighs the critique of God's enemies. Glory is a familiar word in Christian lingo and circles. I grew up in a Christian family, in church, and in my childhood, I always linked the word glory to the My Little Ponies, which were sparkly, compared to the normal ones like Applejack and Candyfloss. of you smiling there. I equated God's glory to this other world sparkliness that was detached from the ordinary everyday life. And yet God's glory, the Hebrew word is kavod, which literally means a weight or heaviness, is intrinsically linked to and inherent to God's presence in creation in the everyday the weight of God's very being is expressed through creation and throughout scripture we see the glory of God as a weight and a heaviness that shakes the earth there's so much more we could say about that glory and creation and dwelling and read through John's gospel and his letters it's a huge theme there But secondly, the psalm leads us to look in and it asks this question, what does it mean to be human? One of the loudest questions we hear shouted in our culture just now, gender, sexuality, the unborn, disabled, human rights, human enhancement with technology, human personhood is being deconstructed and reconstructed at a rapid pace. But this culturally-rooted question was different. The cultural context was different. This question of humanity is around relative value and worth. When we consider the weight of God's glory set above the heavens and his power, his person, being human seems so small and insignificant in comparison. And this thought is reflected in Isaiah 40, He sits enthroned above the circle of the earth and its dwellers are like grasshoppers. And yet here in this psalm we see there's an obvious link between humanity and God. The essence of our humanity, our earthy humanity, is not detached from this glorious earth-shaking God. But rather we are intrinsically linked to him, shaped by, stamped with, and crowned with his glory and his honor yes he is mindful of the human being yes he cares for us as human beings but he has crowned us assigned to us authority and purpose that reflects the glory that is set above the heavens we need to jump back to genesis 1 to the very beginning because it's a good place to start And after five days of creating life, God said, let us, the triune God, make man in our image after our likeness to rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth itself and every creature that crawls upon it. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, every creature that crawls upon the earth. And you'll see, I'm not sure if you can see the colors that I've highlighted, but there is a direct correlation between the how we were created as human beings in God's image and the why we were created as human beings. The divine purpose and intent for human beings in the context of God's creation. The messaging over humanity around this image of God in the cultural context in which the Genesis passages were written was radically countercultural. These Genesis passages are essentially the democratization, the spreading out of the cultural understanding of what it meant to bear God's image. The ancient kings and rulers, they set themselves apart and above in authority over other people, building statues of themselves or idols, images, placing themselves in the authority of God's. And we see that in Egypt and the Pharaoh and the Babylonian rulers. But in this passage, Yahweh says no, This authority, the place of ruling over, is not for one king or one ruler. This is for every man, every woman, every boy and every girl is designed to bear my image, to share my glory, and to co-rule over my creation. Bearing God's glory is the central core essence of our being human. This is what gives worth, value, and purpose. And this morning, if you hear nothing else, hear this. As a man, a woman, the boy or girl, whatever is going on in your life, your capacity, your struggles, your success, your story, your feelings, Your existence as a human being is what gives you worth, nothing else. And you bear the glory of God this morning in your workplace, in your neighborhood. That is what your purpose is in this earth, in this rapidly changing culture where all the structures of our humanity are being dissected and deconstructed and reconstructed in a false worldview that is apart from God, the church really needs to fully grasp and live out the full scope of what it means to be human in creation, in this time, in this place. Thirdly, we look out or look down And so the rest of Psalm 8 makes sense. We are crowned with God's glory and authority to fulfill a purpose. You made them rulers over the works of your hands and put everything under their feet. God has a purpose for humanity, for men, women, boys, and girls. And here it is fleshed out. As human beings, we are called to subdue. In the garden where they were called to be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue everything that was in the garden, everything, every creative potential that God had put in motion with the seed-bearing plants and the reproductive system of male and female. There was the potential for life. And the Hebrew word to translate subdue in verse 28, the Hebrew is kabash, literally means To make the earth useful for the benefit and the enjoyment of all people and all creation. To maintain and sustain the garden as a place of flourishing under the rule of God and in the presence of God. We as human beings are originally created to be co-rulers over creation, over a time and a place, over a specific garden. We have been created to do culture, to cultivate our patch of creation, to facilitate the flourishing and the well-being of all physical, emotional, spiritual, psychological, relational material of others around us. Secondly, as human beings, we are called to worship out in his world. Now this is beautiful. The first human-God interaction recorded in Scripture is on page one. And it's the experience of Adam and Eve, man and f- male and female, hearing this command, and their response in obedience to this command, fulfilling their very purpose as human beings, constituted their worship. The garden became a temple. Human beings stood in that priestly place between creator and creation. The term worship and glory in our Christian circles and structures raise a lot of questions and sometimes some unhelpful compartmentalization of faith and world. So we have a worship team. We have a worship leader We have a time of worship, and we gather together to worship. We sing, Lord, be glorified as we worship. Let your glory fall here as we worship. Glorify your name in all the earth. Have we drawn a line around worship as being singing songs? Have we restricted our worship to the four walls of this church? Have we made our role of glorifying God as that otherworldly sparkly thing, as being passive, general, or an abstract experience that's detached from our real lives, real contexts, real struggles, real humanity? Eugene Peterson reflects on this concept of glory and worship, and he speaks of worship as the fulfillment of our basic humanity. He says, if we as human beings are going to live as God originally intended, which is to the glory of God, we cannot do it abstractly or in general. We have to do it under the particular conditions in which God works, namely time and place. Here, And now, rooting our personhood, our spirituality, back into creation, real time, real place, we fully embrace our our inherent worshiping identity as bearing God's image, as nothing less than the divine commission over all humanity to serve as priests within the temple of creation. We glorify his name in all the earth and windsor baptist we glorify his name in this patch of the earth on the Lisburn road how are we going to use our new building the majestic to subdue this corner of the earth to create a, sp- a space for the flourishing and to glorify god's name in this corner of the earth our full human identity bearing God's image, and this time, this place under his rule shifts our identity from being church people to kingdom people. Church people think about how to get people into church, but kingdom people think about how to get church out into the world. Church people worry that the world might change the church, and kingdom people work to see the church change the world. For various historical and cultural reasons our versions of the gospel have all often developed apart from the beginning of the story in creation and take the form of what some writers have called a half gospel this gospel does not start at genesis 1 in creation and humanity but jumps right into genesis 3 and limits the gospel to fall and redemption what does this look like well we begin with the bad news and a moral detachment. Those people out there have a problem of sin. We have the answer, redemption in Jesus, full stop. Mission is limited to evangelism. And we try to get people to come into us. We try to convince them they have a problem. And then we give them the answer. What are the implications of that and the limitations of that half gospel? In the half gospel, our story is really about telling people how they eventually can escape from this planet Earth by giving out a proverbial ticket to the afterlife. The gospel is an abstract concept that we struggle to pluck from this space in the air and land on the lap of the mom, a parent, and toddlers, or the parent of an autistic child, or our next-door neighbor. It can feel impossible, irrelevant, and daunting to do evangelism with this gospel, And it's hard to begin that conversation naturally and organically about sin and the need of redemption. When we hold the gospel within this half model, it also affects our church identity and our own gospel formation, our pastoral care. The church who lives the half gospel embraces Jesus as no more than Lord of my heart, my hope for heaven, and then we hunker down together and hope for jesus to come back which actually just falls into the model of secularism secularism, where faith is okay if it's private and personal the gospel in this half model becomes therapeutic mission becomes an appendix to church life worship becomes individualistic experiential and detached from the real world and real situations The half gospel also fails to answer the real questions of our culture today that many of us if i'm honest and our children are increasingly grappling with tom wright says that we read the bible through 16th century eyes and 19th century questions which are largely framed with sin judgment guilt eternity afterlife and those really aren't the questions in people's hearts today He says you need to start reading the Bible with first-century eyes and 21st-century questions, which are, what does it mean to be human? Where is life going? What's it all about? And what is my purpose here on this sphere? All of which the full gospel can answer when rooted back into creation and heading towards a recreation When we start at the beginning which is the very good place to start when we root the gospel firmly in creation our created purpose for humanity in the context of of the world our purpose and our worship how we understand and practice gospel and mission and church takes a much broader scope the gospel in the new testament is good news it is a public announcement a public truth. That's why we do the public reading of God's truth together. you um, can Skip ahead, just a slide there. Thank you. God has changed the course of creation in Christ. In Christ crucified, God has defeated sin, death, and evil. He has reconciled the world to himself. In the son's death and resurrection, he has begun a new creation. He now rules at the right hand of God the Father, bringing his kingdom into completion through his co-rulers, the church. This is the new state of affairs. A new world has begun here. The church is a public gathering. That's the literal meaning of ecclesia. We as church stand in a priestly role, and we take that identity from First Peter and Exodus 19, kingdom of priests. We stand between the creator God and this space, this patch of creation. We take our place here in the public square. We represent God and his rule and his heart, his will, his purpose for creation in the public square. And we represent this corner of creation Back to God together as church. And that's why we must enter the public square. And most recently, we've seen how we are trying to subdue this creation patch of Northern Ireland over the issue of abortion by praying, lamenting, repenting, speaking truth to power, influencing, subduing this garden and our stewardship in a way that enables flourishing and culls the weeds that literally drain life. Now, I'm hearing some alarm bells ring when we speak like this. Does this full gospel downplay the death and resurrection of Jesus? Does this mean that evangelism is nullified? The redeeming, atoning spiritual reality that has been set to work that deals with the realities of sin of the individual... How does that come into play? No. The redemptive Christ event in the God-man is the apex of the story. This is the means by which the full story can be lived out. The death and the resurrection of Jesus is the cosmic, game-changing moment in all of history. That's why we celebrate it and remember and proclaim it again and again until he comes But to focus on fall and redemption, without the bookends of creation and recreation, limits our understanding of the good news and salvation and our purpose in this world. The half gospel focuses on our vision of what we have been saved from, sin, hell, judgment, but does not answer or ask the question, what are we saved to and what are we saved for? Yes, we have forgiveness and sins in Jesus. Yes, to atonement. But why? So that we can be brought back into right relationship with God. That's reconciliation. Why has God reconciled us and the world to himself and Christ? So that we can be united with him, partake in the divine nature in our humanity, be filled with his spirit's life. That's redemption and regeneration why have we been redeemed and regenerated so that we can live the life we were always intended to live to be the truest human beings the truest form of donna the truest form of nathaniel of gordon of david of micah and of tabitha redemption restores his image in us lets us loose to pursue our original human purpose to worship and subdue in his way, and most importantly now, in his power in the spirit. Redemption is not the end of Christ's work in us, it's the beginning and the means by which we participate in his restorative purposes in us and in the world. And so we, the church, because we are the corporate body of people who are redeemed, regenerated, reconciled, re-imaged. We are the ones who together, like Sam 8, look up. The rest of society has failed to look up. We look in to ourselves, to each other. We know and embrace the full purpose of our humanhood, our personhood and our priestly role. And we find ourselves, like Adam and Eve, in this corner of creation, affected by Genesis 3, in this BT9 garden, and we enter into the spaces and the places and the situations we have been asked to cultivate and subdue on our patch, on our watch. And we look ahead. We are people of the resurrection because Of the resurrection we become people who restore we are a people who know the end of our story our identity and our activity as church are shaped by the alpha and the omega the beginning and the end we live our lives together now under the good news announcement and the real hope that the kingdom of jesus has come is coming And will come in full on earth in this time, in this place. Our hope of heaven is so much more than floating off this earthly sphere on a cloud, strumming a harp. But the complete restoration of heaven to earth, humanity in full fellowship with God, where there will be no death, mourning, crying or pain. Where he will dwell with us and we will reign with him. And we live as church in this time, in this place, as a sign, a symbol, and a foretaste of that kingdom, that will and is coming. We live today as the signpost that says, when the kingdom comes in full, when Jesus is coming back to reign in this new heaven and earth, things will look a little bit like this. C.S. Lewis paints this picture so beautifully for us. When Aslan is coming, but not fully come, and winter starts to fade, wrong will be right when Aslan comes in sight. At the sound of his roar, sorrows will be no more. And in this time in 2019 in Northern Ireland, in BT9, as Windsor Baptist Church think about our new building, we can hear the lion's roar, and we can see how the winter can fade to spring here on our patch. Our missional identity as church becomes one of alt-minded restorers. We enter into these real spaces and situations and structures in this community and asks, what are the false stories being told here over international families, asylum seekers, refugees, over disability, over the sectarianism materialism and consumerism up that bt9 end of the lisbon road over marriage over gender over the unborn and we reflect biblically on what god's story is and should be here and how we tell with our words and facilitate the realization of the fuller more beautiful and better story out here because of jesus Lord of heaven and earth. Lord of this time, of this place. And we ask somewhere amidst the discussions on the price of steel and fundraising and notice boards and electrical things, how are we going to use our new building to tell and live out that story? To seek the flourishing and the welfare of this part of the city And perhaps, as Jeremiah suggests, as we step out, live into our full human purpose, our full purpose as church in the world, the fullness of worship as a kingdom of priests, perhaps as we seek the flourishing of this part of the city, it will go well for us as we experience our own flourishing fully entering into what it means to be human and church together, the full gospel and the full mission of God out there in his world. And so to use evangelical alliance lingo, we reimagine our faith, reimagine worship, reimagine humanity and creation, reimagine gospel, mission and church And we pray, Spirit, that you lead us beyond ourselves. Restore the honor and the glory of your name here and now in this time, in this place. As church, we proclaim together, you are the creator and the Christ, the King of heaven and earth. In this time and place, you are exalted over this corner of the earth, And as your people submitted to your rule, may your kingdom come, may your will be done on earth, may your will be done here in this place, in these streets, in these homes, in this school, in this week, over this community, just as it is in heaven And we respond and offer ourselves as an answer to that prayer, Lord Jesus, to live out the fullness of your purposes for us. Spirit, we love you, we worship, and we adore you. Glorify your name in this part of the earth. Lead us, your people, into our full purpose to step out beyond ourselves to worship you in your world gift us with your spirit-filled imagination for the kingdom restoration in this time and this place for yours is the kingdom the power and the glory forever and ever we pray amen